Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very pleased and uh, privileged to have had Peggy O'Donnell Haffington on the podcast. Peggy is an assistant instructional professor in the Department of History at the University of Chicago. Uh, her background is in history. There, she teaches historical research and writing methods and also gender and women's history. She is the author of her first book, Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother, um, which is what we talk about in this conversation. We start the conversation by kind of just generally asking, why is it that some women uh, do not have children and what are some of the reasons for that? We talk about um, millennials and younger people generally having children later and some of the impact uh, that many structural aspects of her society have for the idea of choice. We talk about various uh, complicated factors of choice, especially between career and family. We spend a good amount of the conversation talking about the history of abortion and contraception laws. Uh, we talk about the role of Anthony Comstock. We talk about contraceptives, Roe v. Wade, Dobbs. We talk about the history and origins of the nuclear family the grandmother hypothesis, public perceptions of people without children, and many other uh, topics. Um, I absolutely loved uh, Peggy's book. I think it's a, an absolutely important uh, moment to have this type of conversation as people are changing their ideas about you know, gender norms, as they're changing their ideas about family, as they're changing their ideas about many things, as we're moving through the 21st century. Um, I think it's good to have these types of conversations um, in really honest and balanced ways, which Peggy does in her book, which she does in the conversation. Uh, she's absolutely brilliant. She's very lovely. And it was it was such a blast to talk to her for a full two hours. I was, I was very, very... Um, uh, thankful that she gave so much of her time and energy and and I, to be honest i probably could have gone at least another hour we we definitely covered so many things and she was just a, a real joy to talk to and um really really wonderful to to read her book uh, as always you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com it's also on youtube uh, so subscribe and uh, share with uh, with everyone you know and uh, now i bring you peggy o'donnell heffington I'm here with Peggy O'Donnell Heffington. Uh, Peggy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very much looking forward to uh, talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, you have written your first book, uh, which is called Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother. It's a great subtitle, by the way. And uh, it, it's a great book. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, we'll talk all about it. Uh, but before we do, just tell listeners kind of the uh, snapshot of who you are. So um, what your background is in, what you study, what you currently do, and uh, how you came to write the book. Sure, yeah. So I am a professor of history at the University of Chicago. Um, the The book is a complete departure from, from my doctoral work. Um, I was trained as a European historian, and um, and I worked on human rights history. The the history of <laughs> exhuming mass graves actually was what my dissertation was about, um, and I found that to be a really important topic. But it wasn't 
something I was deeply passionate about. And so when I left graduate school and I started teaching, um, I initially returned to the dissertation to, to say, you know, because we're supposed to write books as historians, like, how do I turn this into a book? Mm-hmm. And I realized that I had sort of no interest in pursuing that anymore. Um, so then I'm casting about for, for a book topic. And I realized that having children and not having children was something that I talked about constantly with, with my, with my peers. It was something that I cared about. Um, and I decided to sort of pursue, you know, a, a book length history of the same subject that sort of got me out of bed in the morning. Um, and so, so this book was really, it was a departure from, from my original sort of interests as a historian. And it was a way of connecting my, my sort of personal interests with, with my historical work. So is it fair to say it's a it's a, a passion project? It's something that you feel passionate about, it's something that you really enjoy. And obviously you can use your your skill set as a historian as a kind of lens over it as well. Uh it's definitely something that you feel passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I started conceiving of this book when I was, I guess I was in my early 30s. I was watching, you know, my peers either have children sort of decide to not have children grapple with the decision of whether or not to have children or whether or not children could even fit into their lives. Um, and, and that got me, that got the historian part of my brain thinking of, you know, like, are these, are these new questions? Is this, is this a new experience? Um, and I think one of the delightful things about history is that basically nothing is new. Um, you can sort of do, you can do a history of, of anything. And, um, and, and so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it really was, it was a project that, that grew out of my own personal experience, trying to sort of contextualize things that I and the people around me were, were going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to try and figure out, well, where is this coming from or, or what's the kind of origins with this? So I guess there's this idea of, I mean, really, I guess your, your book is kind of about motherhood, but in terms of, in a, in a, in a different approach of, of why people are not and and in the book it's cool how you organize the chapters i'm i'm sure this was intentional but uh you you start the introduction by saying that you know we're not having children and then you give you know each chapter is because of this reason this reason this reason so it's you know six chapters uh and then the conclusion which i thought was was really clever so i guess for you what's the kind of <clears throat> central thesis you're trying to get out uh in the book what is it that you want to really kind of drive home as your central thesis so there's there's two ideas I think at the core of the book, and they're a little bit intention, or they seem to be a little bit intention um, at first glance. But I think that they're actually connected. One is that there have always been women without children. There have always been a variety of reasons people haven't had children. That sounds super simple, um, but I think it actually was something that that I really felt like needed to be established. When you when you listen to you know politicians in the media, they tend to frame not having children as this thing that millennials invented, that it's like another thing that millennials have broken or another way that they're shirking their duties or being selfish. Um, or um, I had a number of interactions sort of early on in writing the book with, you know, people I think who, who would very much identify themselves as being supportive of reproductive rights and, and choice and, and all of this who looked at me and they said, you know, how could you possibly write a long history of not having children? Like, wasn't birth control invented in the 1950s? Like, how, who are you writing about? And so I really felt like I needed to establish, no, people were making very deliberate decisions about their reproductive lives and whether they were going to parent or not 
for a very, very long time. Um, and that as, as the, the book's organization shows that many of the reasons they would have had actually very much mirror reasons that, that women today cite when they say they're not having children. So that's one piece, like that this is not a new thing. On the other hand, I wanted to sort of suggest that, um, you know, that this is something that is becoming increasingly common. Um, and, and that is, I think, in large part because of the way we've constructed our, our modern society and our lives that, that makes all of the reasons that women have not been having children for a very long time, it sort of intensifies those reasons and makes it like, makes more people think harder before they have children. Yeah, I, I I would absolutely agree. Um, I I recently had uh, Jean Twangy on the podcast, and we talked to her obviously about generations. That's her work. And, you know, she she looks at you know um, the data points over the six generations uh, in our society, and kind of these fast and slow kind of life cycles that people have. And obviously, millennials um, are you know we're we're now uh, at least myself, I you know as a as a so either a middle or older millennial, we're we're all getting into our forties now. We're in our early, you know, late thirties, early forties, and uh, we're we're all figuring out this kind of thing about uh, about family. And so, obviously, but th- it's not um, only millennials. Uh, millennials certainly um, have got married later, if at all. They have kids later, if at all. Um, but other generations have done some variant of this. So, obviously, older generations were having children uh, much earlier in life but not every generation and so it's interesting to see the kind of uh, ebbs and flows here so obviously you mentioned in the book uh and as i'm bringing it up here this idea about millennials and so um well i guess what's your kind of uh take on um the current generation so obviously gen z is you know between the ages of what is it 11 or 12 to 26 27 whatever that is so I guess mm-hmm. we're seeing that with them too, but I guess millennials are the kind of the, the biggest cohort that's of, you know, uh, childbearing age of sorts, if you will. Um, so is it not just because of individual choices of why millennials aren't having kids, but also structural ones such as policies and laws and things like that? What's your kind of, I guess, take on the, the millennium, millennium uh, cohort where they're saying, hey, listen, we're going to just wait uh, or not have it at all, or we're not going to have six kids. We're going to have one kid, maybe. What's your kind of, um, uh, you know, points that you're trying to drive home on 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 millennials? Yeah, I mean, maybe I can tell an anecdote, an anecdote to sort of illustrate. So, I I really started thinking about this book in earnest when I I had just finished my PhD at Berkeley, um, and I I moved to take a postdoctoral fellowship at. West Point at the Military Academy in New York. And so I left Berkeley, California, where I was surrounded by, you know, other graduate students who were all making like 20 grand a year in Berkeley, um, you know, who could sort of barely feed ourselves, let alone think about creating more humans. Um, but also sort of a milieu of like, you know, Silicon Valley and and tech workers. And, you know, no one I knew was really thinking about having children. Either, either it was sort of a ridiculous economic proposition, or it was just sort of not the priority. And then I find myself landing at West Point. um, And I'm surrounded by 
army officers um, who were largely men and their wives who were sort of the, the women of my age that, that I found myself interacting with. And they all had three children. I mean, it was it was tr- really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been I had a, a woman who had had the postdoc before me had told me on the phone. She'd warned me, like y- your uterus has never felt so barren <laughs> as it will when when you land at West Point. Um, and and of course, there's a cultural component there, right? Like they lived in in a culture where having children at a relatively young age was quite normal. Mm-hmm. But I also came to understand that there were all kinds of policies and structures around their lives that made it possible, that sort of facilitated having having lots of children. Um, so um, there's, you know, subsidized daycare, there's, there's free health care, there's, um, there's subsidized housing, um, like multi-bedroom housing for, for officers' families. There's, um, there's sort of, genuinely inspiring community efforts to support each other. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't want to discount, of course, uh, military life carries a lot of risk. My, my husband is a retired army officer. I, I certainly wouldn't want to discount that. But in a lot of ways, the military created circumstances under which it was quite possible to have large families. Um, and, and then so conversely, that made me think about like, okay, well, people living in a context where daycare is incredibly expensive, where, you know, housing is incredibly expensive, where you move a lot, but there's no sort of, you know, social infrastructure to welcome you and support you in a new place. Um, but, you know, where, where it is quite difficult to, to have a lot of children or, or maybe any children at all. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're, you're, it sounds like you're talking about like the infrastructure. Maybe let me let me let me push this a little bit further, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm misrepresenting yeah. you. <clears throat> so the claim maybe here could be, if there's an infrastructure or a or a type of structure where um, those uh, needs are met. So let's just say daycare and or childcare. Um, healthcare, um, you know, maybe something that was, you know, maybe let's not say subsidized housing, but housing that was maybe more affordable. You're, could, you know, can I push that claim to say we probably would see people having more kids if there was better, if there was a better infrastructure kind of, you know, writ large, you know, the, 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 the nation as a whole, would, would, would you push it that far or will we still see this kind of hesitancy by people to say, yeah, that's all great, but I still don't want to have kids. What What do you think? Well, I think I. This is the typical historian move. Like, well, it's complicated. Um, so fine. I, it's I totally think... fine. <laughs> I've, I'm so used to that answer on on this podcast at this point. You you clearly are around academics a lot. That's my joke with my students: is that the answer to everything is like, well, it's complicated. It's a great answer. So... I, I like that answer. It's just <laughs> <laughs> so on the one hand. Um, I do think there are studies and scholarship that suggests that um, the women's access to education and contraception just sort of encourages people to have smaller families, that people opt in to having smaller families when women have, have other options and they have access to contraception. So, so it may be that, that there is some, you know, that it's not, 
solely a failure of modern society, but actually some of its successes that, that are allowing people to, to limit the size of their families. Yeah. On the other hand, though, um, there are numbers that suggest that precisely what you are proposing is true, that if there, there were sort of structures or policies or um, laws or support systems that, that helped families, that, they, that people would have more children. Primarily, I'm thinking about, so in, in the United States today, the, the fertility rate, which is the number of, of births any woman will have in her lifetime, the average number, is 1.7. And when surveys ask American women how many children they want, the average is three. So, so American women are having significantly fewer children than they say they want. Um, and, and so I think, I think in, in that gap, you can probably see that, that there is some element of, you know, people stopping at one or two because it's freaking expensive or because their lives are too complicated or they live too far from family um, when under ideal situations, the size of, of the family that they want is three. Um, and, and so in that gap, I think there is opportunity to sort of better support families so that people aren't, you know, I'm all for people who want to to limit births, but but I don't think it's great that people who want more children don't feel like they can have them. Yeah, yeah. See, see that was a great answer. See, like it's complicated, but that's how most of life is. It's complicated, right? Yeah. That's, that's what history teaches us. Like humans and life yeah. is complicated. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, I, I want to come back to some of those factors uh, a, a bit, yeah. but I guess the the question here let's let's talk about uh, just real quick about. This idea of choice. <clears throat> I know many people personally that are uh, a little bit younger than me, so maybe you know younger millennials, and even people now that are uh, older than me that are, you know, at least kind of in a um, in a way where they can, you know, carry a, a child. They're just kind of you know aging out, if you will, and they're not mm -hmm. physically able to. You know, of course, you can have adoption and things like that as well. But um, so, so in this kind of range. Um, a lot of people that I know personally, and and and, and uh, in my in my clinical work, and you know, clients I see, and things like that, I hear this often of this idea of choice. Well, I don't. So we can talk about the inverse of that of what you're saying with contraception is is giving these people. There's, a, there's an inverse of that, but a lot of people would say, I just don't want to have kids. I don't want to have kids where you know I'm carrying the child, um, or or even to adopt or other or other methods you know surrogacy things like that so how i think for a uh uh you might have numbers behind this i don't have numbers but i think i would suspect that there's a a, a sizable portion of 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 women saying yeah i i don't want to to have uh children because then my career is going to have to take a backseat so you know if i'm you know if I'm uh, somebody that as, you know, as a woman, you know, there's many advancements that have been made in the 20th century and, and still going 21st century for, you know, many women are doctors now and are lawyers and, you know, engineers and all these things. And that's all great. So there's, there's, I mean, amazing you know, net positives for our economy and our society for those things. So that's, that's wonderful. But a lot of the times these, you know, women will say, yeah, but I, I can't be committed to uh, a pretty demanding career. So let's, let's say, let's take law, for example, you know, you do the whole thing, you work your way up, you get to like 29, 30, you know, you've, you're on your way to partner or you're, you know, you're working in the government or something, you're doing really well and you're moving all the way up. You have to factor in 
well, when am I going to sit down and have kids and I got to take time? And, and of course there's, I think still discrimination for, for women that, uh, yeah. that have, that have, uh, you know, they tell their employer they're pregnant or whatever. And, you know, you see a lot of those women get laid off or fired or lose their jobs, which I think is, you know, grotesque, but, um, you know, but so this idea of, of, I think a, a lot of women, I mean, I'm not speaking for women. I've, this is what, you know, I've been told yeah. you know, numerous times is there's this feeling of choice of career and, or, you know, quote unquote family. We can have a separate conversation about this, about, well, how do we, uh, reimagine what family looks like in the 21st century? So that's a kind of already a follow-up, but I guess, what do you make of this idea of uh, this idea of choice, uh, namely between, you know, a woman feeling like they have to choose between a career of sorts within a you know capitalist society, and having one kid, much less two or three kids. What do you what do you make of this? Yeah. So I, when when surveys ask um, people who don't have children sort of why they don't have children, well, or, or to sort of identify themselves, I guess. About 5% of Americans will say that they are voluntarily childless, um, which I interpret, I mean, it, of course, there's, there's, there's gray area, but I interpret that to mean, you know, I just didn't want kids. I, I chose not to have children. So they could be very affluent, have all the money in the world, all the, you know, the community resource, all the resources, mm-hmm. let's say, they yeah. just don't want to have kids. They just don't want to have kids. Okay. And and then about 5 or 6%, um, the CDC estimates are experiencing infertility, that they are mm-hmm. involuntarily childless, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, for millennials, of course, as, as you mentioned, our, our fertile years are not yet done, um, but it, it's sort of looking like millennials will be somewhere between 20 and 25% will have no children. Um, and And so that means that the majority or half, say, of, of people without children fall somewhere between voluntarily and involuntarily childless. And, and I think that that, um, that gray area in between sort of complicates the idea of choice. Like, mm. choice is great. It was an animating principle of um, progressive politics and, and mm. the reproductive rights movement and feminism, at least for half a century. Yeah. However, Choice also sort of implies both an agency to make choices and there's, it doesn't really give a lot of room for for the context in which the choice is made. It sort of implies that like, you've got a whole variety of choices and you just choose whichever one Mm -hmm. one you want to choose. Mm -hmm. Um, In in 1994, a a group of uh, Black feminists and and thinkers and theorists um, called the Sister Song Collective came up with the idea of what they call reproductive justice, which they offered as an alternative to choice for precisely that reason, that they wanted to say, you know, choice is all well and good, but we also need to look at um, the the context a person is making the choice in and the context in which they will have to raise their child. Um, And so then it's not just like abortion and contraception that are choice issues. It's it's lots of things. It's the minimum wage. It's environmental racism. It is income inequality. Um, And and at the other end of the the income spectrum, it's those factors that, that you laid out. It's that, you know, professional women take a lifelong 
pay hit if they have children. Um, there have been um, economists have shown that that the the much of the wage gap between professional women and professional men can be explained by motherhood, that, that women who don't have children effectively have no wage gap sorry, between sorry. them and, and men. And so, so there are these, these other factors that sort of like play into this idea of choice. I, I think the idea of choice makes it seem much cleaner than, than it actually feels to a lot of people. That on, on the one hand, you have people who are, you know, thinking about, do I want to have children or do I want to potentially be you know, economically mobile? Do I want to be able to sort of like save and buy a house yeah, um, yeah. or go to graduate school and then be able to get a better job? Or, um, and then and then on the other hand, you have, you know, do I want to sort of reach the absolute heights in my career or do I want to sort of have to step back for five years? And, or even if I don't step back, my employer is going to, you know, penalize me in all kinds of really subtle ways for, for being a woman with children. And so, so, I mean, again, I think it's, I think it's complicated. Um, mm -hmm. There's, there's both. Well, yeah, I'll leave it there. Maybe, maybe you have a follow up. No, no, that's, I like the way you said, it. I think this idea of choice kind of makes it very sanitized, but it's really more, yeah. uh, you know, complex. And so <clears throat> some of these, we can just talk a little bit about some of the things you mentioned there is, is these sure. uh, contributing factors, which are so you know, income uh, or and or wealth inequality, um, mm -hmm. so or lack of money or funds, uh, social supports are huge. So if your family is living all over yeah. the place and you only have like maybe an aunt that lives an hour away, that's very hard to to raise one and if not more children. Um, you know, partners, flexible work set schedules, etc. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think about you know, maybe for listeners, you know, they'll, they'll have this idea in their mind, either for themselves or people they know that, you know, this idea that if you were to ask people, um, you know, and specifically women, but if you were to ask people, you know, why, why don't you want to have kids? Right. Let's say that you say, so let's say they, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm open to the idea. You know, it's not that I have this aversion to having kids, um, but it's more of, you know, what sacrifices do I have to make? Not even for career or for jobs, but also for kids are expensive. They're very fucking expensive. <laughs> and um, you know this from personal. I, experience. I know this from personal experience. Uh, my daughter's lovely, but it's, it's just, kids are expensive. Um, and and then it's also so it's a monetary thing, uh, and that's a big concern, I think, because it's like if I can't support myself, or I feel like I can't support myself or my partner or whatever. And then we have to very much a hundred percent, you know, a kid can't go and just get a job and just like kind of contribute. Like, you know, that's, so I think a lot of the times it's economic. Um, I think I maybe we'll get into the history in a, in a, in a bit, but you know, I think the contraceptives thing is, is interesting. Um, I think it's a great thing, but mm, I think there's some, as we're seeing, there's some negatives. I think all contraceptives have, especially for women and the role it plays in their in their 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 health, I think has potential side effects, negative side effects. Um, I think it's a great thing in in general of people having choice and autonomy to decide if they do or they don't. But I think that might have been different in 1945, right? Or 1950, where it's like, well, we didn't really have that. So it was like, well, 
you know, if you have an unplanned pregnancy, it's like, okay. And if you still have a kind of, you know, the, the country is still kind of Puritan and it's like, you know, and then abortion wasn't legal. There's not much you could really do. Right. So I wonder how many people have, you know, been unplanned, if you will. Um, and what that would look like if the things we have now were in place, you know, hundred years ago, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a thought experiment, I guess, but so all of these things. And then, but I guess the big thing is about this thing about like, like, um, I'll say family, but I guess really is like community slash family is like, I mean, it kind of does take a village to raise a kid. I mean, it, it's, you could have two loving, endearing, invested parents from day one, um, but they need a break. Um, it's very difficult. Uh, if one or both are working, uh, it's very difficult. Um, and so I wonder, you know, you usually rely on, you know, grandparents, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a nephew or a niece or a cousin or something like that. And so I just, again, I, I think that when I've talked to certain people and they say, well, I don't think I'll be able to do it financially. I don't know what I'm going to, what's going to happen with my career. I don't have any family that lives nearby or I'm not close with my family or they wouldn't do that or they're, you know, not able to for various reasons. I think it just is a list that starts piling up. So it's like, yeah, in theory, I'd like kids, but I also want to be a responsible adult. And that just feels irres potentially irresponsible or extremely high risk. Or, And again, just in, in a context, this, you know, back, you know, let's say 100 years ago, well, it was like, well, you know, you just deal with it and you figure it out. And like, that's hard. But I think if you gave people more options, yeah, it might be different. So I think... There's an interesting thing with various contraceptive methods, which again, I think is a net positive, but it's interesting how we're having these conversations now and we didn't have these in 1930, right? It's just interesting, uh, or at least, uh, let me correct, we don't, not in the same way, I should say. So, you know, I think, um, what is it, I guess, about all of those factors and those elements and maybe other things I haven't mentioned that are kind of getting loaded into this idea of how complicated this idea of choice or a person's decision is to, to not have or uh, children. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things you're getting at is that it is, it is great that people today, women today in particular feel like they have more choices about how they want to live their life. Like, do they want to be a CEO or do they want to be a astronaut or do they want to, you know, live in the woods on a commune or, or do they want to, you know, have children and, uh, you know, and, and, and that, that is a, that is a great thing. Um, but I also do think that, you know, the more choices we have, the more choices we leave behind, right? Like yeah. the, the more, the more options expand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the more lives you don't get to live because we all only get to live one life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, so I think that there's, that piece, which I think makes it feel increasingly fraught because it's not like, I don't know, in medieval Europe, you, you either got married and had kids or you became a nun or you, you know, helped your sister raise her kids as, you know, and, and like those were the options, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and now we, we do really have a lot of options. And I know for myself, I'm someone who can't decide what I want to eat for lunch. If I have like four options, I'll stand there paralyzed <laughs> in the kitchen <laughs> snacking, right? Um, and, and so, so there, there is, I, I, I do think that that is sort of increasing the sense of it being 
complicated and hard because what life do you want to live? There's there's sort of a, a large number. And that is both a, a wonderful thing about the modern world and also, I don't know, something that gives me a lot of anxiety, I think, of of you know, picking picking the right path because there are there are so many. Um but I but I also think that the some of the elements that you that you brought up are are so true. I mean, um the the lack of, of community support and, and how different that looks from the past. We can talk about the history, um, I, I think, you know, in, in a bit, but um, one of the things that was so striking about my experience at, at West Point on a military base, watching, you know, these, these army families is, was that piece of, you know, real material everyday support for mm-hmm. people in their parenting. Um, I overheard a conversation between one mother who who had a, a she was a, it was her first child, young, you know, three month old, I think, who was, uh, had digestive issues and was just crying all the time. And the other mom had like four kids and was sort of had seen it all. And she was like, come over anytime. We literally have a coffee yeah. pot on 24 hours a day. The door is never locked. Like if you need to, if you need someone at two in the morning, come to my house. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, I have, I have one friend in the world or two friends in the world who do not live on my block, who I could show up at two in the morning and they wouldn't be like, what That's on right. earth are you doing? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and these, these were women who, who had barely, you know, barely knew each other. They, they lived on the block from each other. And I think that that was, that was a piece that made me think, you know, it is about policies. It is about, mm-hmm. you know, sort of institutions that support families, but it is also that, that sort of intangible human connection that, that would have been more common in the past. And that modern life has just sort of, I don't know, we've, we've lost it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think sometimes I'll say this, one of the things that do that, that there's a, I think disservice that's done when, People will say like, well, there's systemic issues, you know, for this topic or other topics. Some, some people will have a kind of negative response to that initially. But I think when, if you sit down with somebody and you say, well, that's, let's explain the impact of this and see, like, you almost can't unsee that. Like it's, it's, it, there's yeah. obviously an impact. And I mean, one of the biggest things, whether you want to do the social contract thing or not, is that, you know, we don't live on islands, right? We all live together in communities and a yeah. shared space and cities and towns and, you know, whatever. And, and, and yet we don't, we don't have this kind of, um, we don't have these structures and we also don't have that, that organically happens. So it's like people, if you look at our long evolutionary history as humans on the planet, we've always, I mean, we're deeply social. We've always had people helping other people yeah. to do, that's how we survive this cooperative model. And of course there's, 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 you know, systems that can kind of exploit that in a really negative way where, you know, you don't have any choice. Like, so there's, there's obviously extremes on that, but I don't think we're anywhere near that. So it's just, I think you see how, how important it is. And, but, but to be fair to your, your first point, what you were saying, uh, this idea of choice, uh, especially for, 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 for millennials, I feel it's like for everybody, but for millennials, it's just a lot of angst. It's like, Oh my God, what's the right decision? What do I do? And there isn't a right decision, but that, that's, uh, that's very, very difficult for, for a lot of people to be like, ah, when and how, and, you know, and it's, it's very hard for people to kind of just be like, there isn't one. And, and, uh, it's a wanting to make the right decision and be responsible, which is great. But sometimes people get paralyzed with like fear of like, which, which choice to make. And this is like, this isn't just a choice of like, which car do I buy? This is like another human being coming into existence or whatever. Um, and I think right. people really yes. 
thankfully see how important that is uh, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and then yes, economically and physically. So, you know, it's not just, you know, three meals a day, roof over your head, clothes on your back. I think we all get now that's important, but there's all these other things. And I think that's what makes people a little bit more, oof, yeah, this is a lot. So I think that's a good thing, but it does create this idea of choice with more anxiety, which I, 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 I definitely am sympathetic to. I mean, I, I hear that a lot. Totally. And, and I think, I think you're absolutely right that, um, there's, there's a sense of, I don't know, decision paralysis or, or just sort of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, trying to figure out like, like what is the right way to live my life because I have a variety of choices, or maybe I feel like my choices are actually constrained and the ones that are available to me aren't actually that great. Or, um, you know, I might want to have kids, but my life has never provided me the opportunity to do so, and and that that is fraught. Um, and I see that in in my students even more intensively. So I, I teach college students, I teach you know Gen Z, um, and they, you know, they they were children in two thousand eight in the crash. Like they they've sort of grown up in a post crash world, and I think um, you know many of them saw their families' financial situations change really radically when they were you know, in, in grade school or whatever. And they, they almost have this even greater sense than I think millennials do of that. They're, that they can't make a mistake. Like that they, they have mm-hmm. to get everything right. Because mm-hmm. if, I mean, I've had students, you know, they, who get an A minus or a B plus on a paper and they come to me and they're like, I'm not going to be able to be a doctor now because like I screwed up this paper. And it's like, no, I want to tell them like, no, just calm down. Like life, life is, is more, um, forgiving than that. But I, but I do think that there are a lot of the things that millennials have sort of experienced about, you know, feeling like we need to be more financially secure than our parents might have before we're going to have a child because we have less trust that the future is going to be better economically, environmentally, politically, whatever. Um, that Gen Z is, is sort of even more like another step, mm-hmm. um, less certain that things are going to work out for them. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> the, the erosion of, of trust in, in institutions, uh, some of it's fair, yeah. but I think a lot of it is really damaging to our society because i mean in in my view if you're trying to corral 330 million people in a big country you need some kind of institutional something uh but again institutions that are kind of working for everybody so yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's definitely difficult so okay so let's do let's 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 get into some of the history here so uh, i can't remember if you start here or not um did you you talk about prior to 1820 so the the mid uh, or early uh, 19th century uh, there were, I didn't know this. So, I mean, again, this is why I love talking to historians of, of different types. You guys are always educating me. Uh, <laughs> there were no laws restricting abortion anywhere in the U S I, I had no idea. I, this is, this is, which was astounding. Again, current climate, you know, again, I was born yeah. into the, into a United States where abortion was legal. So it's, it's not now, at least they're not in the same way. So, right. um, why, why was it, why was there no laws restricting abortion, you know, prior to 1820? Uh, and how did it look different, I guess, in the, um, yeah. uh, you know, 18th century? Um, yeah, so, so it just tells that. And then we'll get to Connecticut, which was the first state to, to outlaw it in 1821. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, there were colonists to, to North America brought with them sort of centuries of precedent in Europe. Um, 
where sometimes there were laws on the books restricting abortion, sometimes there were not. But in general, it was sort of viewed as a, a woman's thing that she's just going to sort of deal with. Um, the, the historian Sarah McDougall, who's at, um, I believe she's at CUNY in, in New York, um, she's shown through her work on medieval France that even in places that did have laws about abortion and infanticide, that was rarely prosecuted. That that you know, and and women who are sort of caught, you know, causing a miscarriage or even committing infanticide were treated very sympathetically in in courts of law. Um, this is all the more true in the early part of pregnancy, right? Like, I mean, think about it. Before there's blood tests or urine tests you buy at the drugstore or ultrasounds, in the first say trimester, the only person who's going to know that she's pregnant is probably that is probably the woman and maybe her husband or sexual partner if he's really paying attention to her periods. So probably the first I don't know fifteen weeks it would be it would be something that she might notice and then could sort of take care of quietly. Um, and, and this was really, really common. Um, and we can see this through, um, through birth records in, um, in early modern Europe, where people slowly start to expand the number of years between siblings. Mm. I mean, it, it, they're doing something to limit births. Um, and, and, Barrier methods didn't work that well. It was much easier through herbal methods to, to end a pregnancy once it had started than to sort of pre prevent a pregnancy in an era before there are condoms or, or diaphragms or IUDs or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, so in in the sort of in medieval Europe, in early modern Europe, in in the American colonies, in the early America, um, there they would have known of lots of herbs and plants that could end of pregnancy at least some of the time. Um, and, and women, women use them. I mean, and they didn't really think about it as abortion. Um, they talked about them as, as female regulating pills or female regulating substances. They, they said that they were things that would restore menstruation. The idea being your period is irregular. It's gone away. You drink this tea and then you've restored menstruation and now you can go about your life. Um, so, in in the 19th century, um, you asked about sort of that the, there's this period in the 19th century, starting in 1821 in Connecticut, and then by 1880, it's it's illegal in every state. Yeah, um, that's, that's there's this years. period of it's crazy. Yeah, yeah like crazy. like very fast very change fast. from very this fast. being sort of like a woman's thing that we just don't really talk about to it being a felony um, in in every state, and by um, by the the late 1870s, it is it is against federal law, like not just not just state law. Um, so there's this whole soup of factors. Um, one factor is um, a sort of increasing fear of of or, or desire to control female sexuality. You have um, a move towards urbanization in the 19th century. People are moving to cities. This creates a situation where there are young unmarried women living outside of their families' homes in large numbers because um, they're working in mills or in factories or as servants. Um, and so, so there's just like generalized anxiety about, you know, what's going to happen to their sexuality. Um, in, in the 1840s in New York, there's a trial of an abortion provider who... Um, 
it, by that point, it had become illegal in New York. And, and so she was on trial for having performed an abortion. But one journalist put it in the paper that that was not her real crime. Her real crime was showing your wife that she could commit adulteries all day and get away with it. So there's this, there's this sort of increased fear of female sexuality, the idea that pregnancy is a thing that controls female sexuality because they can't hide the fact that they've been out there having sex. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's one piece. Mm-hmm. Um, another piece um, is, I would say, like more well-meaning efforts to protect women who are living maybe outside of their family's homes, unmarried, and, and experimenting with sex and experimenting with herbal methods of controlling, of, you know, ending pregnancies. Sometimes these are very dangerous substances that they are being sold. Um, And so, so some of the first laws um, regulating abortion, like for example, the one in Illinois, the first, the first law in Illinois was classified under statutes against poisoning. Um, So, so it was, it was an effort to say like people are out there selling really dangerous substances that could end a pregnancy, but also kill the person who is carrying the pregnancy. Um, So there's, there's that piece as well. And then the third factor is that you have in the 19th century sort of the increasing professionalization of medicine as a field and doctors Mm. see alternative practitioners like abortion providers and like midwives as competition. Um, And so there is, there's sort of a concerted effort across the the 19th century to, to make, you know, these alternative practitioners seem dirty, dangerous, untrained, when the the American Medical Association is established in I think it was 1847, they sort of get in on this and they're they're pushing for you know make make these people who are sort of operating with herbal methods illegal um, and midwives get caught up in this too. That's that's a whole other story. But um, but that is that sort of it's I mean it's it's trying to capture a market right. It's trying to control a market. Um, so there's there's sort of all of these things going on um, in the 19th century, and 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 it and it rapidly means that ending pregnancies becomes not just sort of the business of the woman who's doing it quietly, but but there are all kinds of stakeholders who are sort of um, feeling like they want to control it. That that all makes sense. I guess a few questions I have here is a felony. I mean, that's serious. I mean, so, I mean, did it have to be, I mean, in terms of the jurisprudence, like a felony, like that seems very serious, you know, to, to, to kind of, uh, penalize someone. And then also, was there any type of like, I mean, again, I'm, I'm trying to remember the 19th century, which is, you know, it's it's still kind of puritanical in roots. There's a a lot of religious overtures, you know, was there, was there any element of, of this playing into, into into the yes there's the capitalist economic side of things which totally makes sense and then but again you know is there any kind of religious thing as well where there's just trying to say well you know there's there's some some moral ineptitude if you're doing these things or it says something about you if you're out you know being uh, sexually active with you know people that aren't you know, just kind of one person and like, was there any of that kind of stuff at this time? Or was it just purely on the kind of, uh, uh, you know, economic side of things? 
No, absolutely. I, you're, you're spot on. So um, the figure who sort of encapsulates this the best is a guy named Anthony Comstock, who has, who has been sort of in the news again lately um, because uh, some of his, a law that was passed in his name was sort of referenced in the um, in the Mifepristone ruling from mm-hmm. from Texas mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. But so Anthony Comstock, um, he fought in the Union Army during the Civil War, and he gets out of the army, and he is scandalized by what he sees as the vice of of you know his fellow soldiers that they're into pornography and playing cards and drinking alcohol and rude jokes and you know and you know, they're visiting sex workers. Um, and so he comes out of the army sort of radicalized and he becomes one of the um, the late 19th century and early 20th century sort of primary anti-vice crusaders. And for him, it very much is a religious, it's a religious mission. Um, he, he genuinely believes that um, uh, sex outside of marriage is, is something that is going to bring down civilization. Like he, he thinks that, that it is, um, it, it goes against the laws of God, that God sort of put the barrier of pregnancy in place to control people's sexuality. And if you separate sex and pregnancy, like you're actually going against the laws of God, the laws of nature, you're, you're sort of, he talks about like bringing on the plagues, you know, we're, we're going to end civilization. And so if that's your framework, like if that's what you believe, then then it's it justifies any level of punishment for people who are who are sort of you know either providing abortions or receiving abortions or taking contraceptive pills or or things like that i mean he if 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 it is something that is that dangerous you asked about you know why is it a felony why is it that big of a deal um from comstock's perspective like it wasn't just you know an individual crime like it it really had implications for the future of American civilization or Western civilization even. And so, so for him, I mean, he would, he would brag about how many of, of, um, how many people who had violated his laws would, um, you know, had committed suicide or were sent to work camps, um, because he, he really thought that their crime was, was that great. So Comstock, I, I mentioned, um, from the Mifepristone ruling. So in the 1870s, um, at this point, he has become a very prominent figure in in the anti vice world. He's he's funded by lots of last names that you know, the Rockefellers, mm-hmm. um, and he ends up going to Congress and proposing a law that makes it against federal law to um, send anything through the mail that could inspire lewd thoughts. And so this includes everything from child pornography to even initially like medical textbooks because they have naked people in them to, to condoms, to, um, you know, the female regulating pills, like, like abortion causing substances. Um, and, and it passes very quickly because you know, to him, there's no difference between childhood porno- or child pornography and and condoms. And once you've rolled them all together, it becomes very hard for Congress to say, no, actually, I think we should be able to send child pornography through the mail. So, so this passes incredibly quickly. And, and in 1873, it's it's become dubbed the, the Comstock Act. Um, it, it becomes federal law that you can't distribute these things through the mail. Um, and and this is a way that a lot of abortion providers who are operating you know, outside of state laws, end up getting charged with 
federal crimes because they're they're receiving things, you know, to, to give to their patients. They're receiving them through the mail. I guess, you know, look, I mean, if Comstock wants to have his opinions or whatever, that's fine. I guess the <laughs> real, I mean, I have my personal opinion. I think it's absolutely, you know, Looney Tunes. But I guess the point is, um, or I guess the real scandal here, if you will, is having religious ideas tethered to a legal kind of construct at any point in history where you're unanimously making decisions for a whole group of people. Namely, you have a bunch of white dudes making decisions for women. Like, that's mm-hmm. just like... Now, now, to be fair, I think that there is... <clears throat> look, I mean, I think if there are some... I'm trying to, again, at the time. If there are some health or medical concerns about some of these things yes i mean i think that there probably should be some you know regulatory things to make sure people are are getting good care but it it does seem that a lot of this stuff was really animated by uh you know kind of religious ideology or some kind of extreme version of it but the point is is that 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 had enough legs to, to get all the way to the U.S. Congress, 73 was the Hayes administration. So the, I think it was the Republican administration, if I got that right. Um, you know, and that was, you know, obviously a different time. This is still Reconstruction era. So it's just interesting how there was, I guess, an appetite for that uh, in Congress uh, to, to do that. And, you know, and then it's, you know, it's a felony in, in 1880. Now, I guess that, well, maybe not so obvious, but I'll just I'll link it here and you can tell me if I'm wrong. But I think we see in the United States, I could be really uh, off on my history here, but um, I know in the late 1870s um, and definitely ramps up in the 1880s going into the turn of the 20th century is when we have the women's rights movement that gets started. Now, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I obviously have zero expertise in this, but I, you know, just casually, I mean, I'm sure people can document women's rights movements for many, 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 many years. But I guess in the modern sense of what we get to 1920, you know, the amendment, things like that, some people do kind of put this around 1870s, 1880s, or or is it a little bit before that in terms of like an actual movement with the things we know about? Yeah. Um, so my only question with that is whether whether you, you put the, the starting point, was a lot of that movement, women's rights movement, kind of um first wave feminism if you will uh mm-hmm. really animated by these types of things you know these types of of uh, of of rulings obviously there are many other things including the right to vote and etc but how much was there was there some correlation there or or, or am i making something that's not true i mean <laughs> Uh, anti-abortion activists will will love to point out that Susan B. Anthony was was very vocal about being sort of opposed to contraception and opposed to abortion. Um, that some of some of the that sort of you know first wave feminism or um, suffrage movement era feminism was was also deeply embedded in the sort of anti-vice and temperance movement, um, and and so. And I also think that there was sort of a political benefit in saying what we are asking for is is political rights. We are not saying like let's go 
have sex without consequences. Like, like there's, there's sort of a respectability part of it, but I think also it's sort of like deeply embedded in a, within a religious framework of saying, you know, we want to be partners to our husbands. We want participation in sort of the civic, you know, in the, the civic environment that, that we, that we live in. Um, but we are not asking in, in fact, we're, we're, we're against the idea of sort of undermining traditional marriage or um, mm. sort of changing um, things about the family. So, so I actually, I think that the connection isn't, is, is tenuous there. Um, in terms of, in yeah. terms of, there was a different priority at that time, right? In terms of like, yeah. you know, in terms of like, you know, equality, uh, you know, you know, standing in terms of, you know, voting politically, um, et cetera. So less about, I don't want to say social things, but less about this kind of topic that comes later in history, more of like, okay, do we just have like equal <laughs> rights that like other yeah. humans do another, can we do many things in society? Uh, it sounds like that was the main focus and priority at that mo moment. Not to say that people didn't, you know, obviously have opinions or things yeah. like this, but knowing that you can't, I think politically and realistically, you can't change everything all in like, you know, one time, whether they should or shouldn't is another question, but that this seems to be like, let's just be able to vote first. Let's get that first. And then, <laughs> we, can, then, and then we can start work, keep working on all these other things is, is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's fair. Yeah. So contraception then becomes legal in 65. Is that right? And then mm -hmm. uh, abortion became legal in 72. Um, it's not anymore federally. Uh, and so I guess, so I just kind of walk us through, I guess, the, the, I guess in the 20th century leading up to contraceptives. And then you can talk about Roe v. Wade. I mean, my understanding is, uh, from people I've talked to legally, Roe v. Wade as a legal opinion is not the strongest if people are very mm -hmm. honest. That doesn't invalidate the fact that abortion should be legal. It's just that actual ruling was just not the strongest legal argument. And so I think, again, my understanding is that coupled with uh, certain political parties being super lazy for 50 years and not ratifying it uh, <laughs> is also a problem. Uh, to, be, so to be left unnamed. <laughs> yeah, to be left unnamed uh, more on my side of the aisle, but, you know, very frustratingly so. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, how did we get yeah. finally to contraceptives, um, and then legal, uh, abortion, and then you can kind of just kind of give a, a kind of fast forward to kind of where we're at now of how that has shifted in other ways in which we're trying to, um, you know, fix a crooked line, if you will, at, at the moment. Sure. Yeah. So the, the hormonal birth control pill is invented in the 1950s um, by a Chicago-based pharmaceutical company called J.D. Searle. Um, and they apply for FDA approval of, of their drug in, um, in 1959. They do not say in their application that this is a birth control pill. They say that this is to treat menstrual disorders like people with irregular periods or amenorrhea. Um, the, the FDA takes a while to, um, to approve it. 
in part because one of the side effects that the pharmaceutical company has to disclose to the FDA is, oh, wait, it also prevents ovulation. And so the FDA, finally, when they get around to approving it in, in May of 1960, they, they, they approve it and they tell the pharmaceutical company, Cyril, that it is approved, but bottles of it need to carry a sticker label that says in large letters, this product um, prevents pregnancy. And, and J.D. Cyril, the, the, one of the executives of the pharmaceutical company, um, has since said, you know, it was like a free ad. Like they, 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 right. they did all of the work for us because, um, and, and so by, by the end of the 1960s, um, well, so, but when it is approved, we are still talking about a world where the Comstock laws have not been repealed. Um, things that prevent pregnancy are still technically against federal law for, you know, can't be distributed um, according to federal law. Um, there, there isn't sort of a federally recognized right for people to access birth control. So lots of doctors start prescribing it off, you know, for off-label purposes, precisely for, for birth control. Um, but in 1965, there is a Supreme Court case, um, Griswold v. Connecticut, um, where um, basically the right of married couples to access contraception is, mm -hmm. is granted, mm -hmm. um, but only married couples. Mm -hmm. So in 1965, it you know, married women can get prescriptions for the pill for the purposes of birth control. But say an unmarried woman, a college woman, uh, states can still prevent her from from getting that. So it's only in 1972 um, in in the case. Um, uh, I'm forgetting, but basically, there's a there's a Massachusetts case where um, a. a birth control activist sort of stages this stunt where he hands contraception to a college age woman at, at Boston University. And he gets arrested and he takes it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decides like this is sort of a ridiculous standard that it is, you know, the, the moment you get married, suddenly you can have a birth control mm -hmm. prescription. Um, so, so in 1972, it becomes legal for all American women to access contraception and then and then as you said in 1973 um and it is in these contraception rulings in 1965 and 1972 that the legal framework for abortion is established that basically it's under the the right to privacy saying you know there is nothing more private than like the intimate decisions of, of whether or not to have a child, that should be between a woman, her doctor, and her partner, and, mm -hmm. and like the state should not be involved in that. Um, in 1970, sorry, in, in the case Roe v. Wade, um, when it is argued in front of the Supreme Court, um, one of the justices actually makes a joke that the attorneys who are arguing for the right to abortion are sort of, they're making an argument um, based on every... Um, judicial principle that they can come up with that they're they're saying you know this is the right to privacy they're the stronger argument or or what um you know people who were sort of advocating for abortion access were hoping would be the 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 ultimate legal justification for abortion would be under the 14th amendment just sort of equal rights um equal protection the the supreme court does not go that way they go the right to privacy route, which basically says, you know, a, a 
a woman has the right to, with her doctor, have a private conversation about her her reproduction. And so abortion is protected in the sense of that it is that private conversation. Um, this was sort of greeted as a relatively weak legal argument, as, as you said. And then we spent 50 years with that relatively weak legal precedent and, and, you know, not strengthening it, not, not ratifying it. Um, so it was, it was a little bit of a disappointment for pro-choice a- activists and, and thinkers in 1973 that that was the legal reasoning. It seemed shaky then. And I think we've seen how shaky that is. It would be much harder to undercut, um, the right to abortion if it had been established as something that, you know, was, was guaranteed on the basis of sort of equal rights in front of the constitution. You couldn't have, you know, laws that say, well, yeah, it's a private thing between you and your doctor, but you know, your doctor needs to have all of these different kinds of qualifications. They need admitting privileges. They need hallways that are certain with, you know, all of, all of the ways in which um, states have tried to chip away. Well, prior to Dobbs tried to chip away at that, that right to, um, to privacy between you and your doctor. So, I mean, obviously, there's a, the the poor legal standing. Again, that's, I mean, it's relevant, but it, you know, I, I don't think it, you know, yeah. invalidates the point that I think, you know, obviously, abortion should be legal. I mean, I'm not a legal expert, but I mean, I think it mm-hmm. is one of those things where if you've had for 50 plus years or whatever it is, you know, women have been getting abortions and things like that. I mean, obviously, you know, socially, it's yeah. it's it should be legal for, for a variety of reasons. So, I guess, wh- where do you think? You can give your personal opinion if if you yeah. feel comfortable uh, on on Dobbs, but you know, and then there's, as you were saying, you know, certain uh, groups that have been trying to chip away at this for a long time for their own, you know, uh, ideological uh, uh, stances and positions. Um, but I guess, as in terms of, in terms of. Uh, a historical lens about that it seems i mean it seems regressive it seems backwards and i'm not saying that because i'm very pro uh choice i mean it just i just and so that's what i'm asking like in a historical context obviously we have yeah. many periods in time where we'll you know go two steps forward three steps back you know that happens but this feels regressive in, in some ways i mean just historically how do how do you see it in this whole uh, kind of arc that we've been discussing and then, you know, personal opinions, if you want to share. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that, that strikes me is, is looking historically at the the history of, of people limiting births and ending pregnancies is that I, you know, we talked about that over the course of the 19th century, you have, um, one state after another, and then at the federal level, abortion become illegal. At the same time, from all of the available evidence, the demand for abortion goes, I mean, it's it skyrockets. Um, one historian has suggested that, um, and of course, you can only estimate this, right? People are not like, like recording their abortions. Yeah, but yeah. Um, one historian has suggested that at the beginning of the 19th century, um, about one in 25 pregnancies in the United States was aborted. And by the end of the 19th century, it's between one, it's, it's one out of every four or five. And so, so just like a dramatic increase Mm -hmm. 
in the same period when it is becoming increasingly illegal. So I think that there is, is this feeling in some corners of American politics today, that if you make it illegal, that people will sort of magically stop wanting to control their reproduction. And, and just historically speaking, the, the evidence is, is entirely to the contrary. What it does is it gets more dangerous yeah. um, legally, certainly, but also it gets more dangerous um, physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, like, it probably is a good idea that people aren't selling poisons to each other. Like, like some regulation is, is a good thing, but you can only regulate something that, that is legal. Once it is illegal, mm-hmm. then people are sort of buying whatever and there's sort of no control. So you can, we, we, yeah, I mean, one of, one of the major outcomes of Roe was that the, the number of deaths from sepsis after abortion, just like, I mean, it goes through the floor, like, because, because abortions could be, and in fact, had to be pr- performed by medical doctors in medical settings. So people are not getting massive infections and dying after abortion. Um, so, so it, it, yeah, to me, to me, just the history suggests that this, this fantasy that, that by making abortion illegal, you'll make it go away. just, just doesn't, it doesn't track at all. Um, people have shown that they are very motivated to end a pregnancy that they do not want mm-hmm. to carry um, and, and that they will take great risk to, to end that pregnancy. So, so that's one piece of it. It just, it just seems like a historical fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, also in terms of it being regressive, I think um, it certainly came as a surprise to me and it seems to have come as a surprise to people who are much more familiar with the legal history on this. Like Mary Ziegler is, is, is sort mm-hmm. of the, the, um, the, the foremost expert on um, the history of reproductive law and abortion law. It seems to have come as a bit of a surprise to her too, how quickly Comstock has sort of resurrected himself. I mean, even in the book, I, I make a comment that has not aged well. My book came out last week, but I make a comment about how like the last, the last vestige of Anthony Comstock is finally swept away in 1972 when, when all people get the, the right to, to receive contraception. The thing is the Comstock law was never repealed and it wasn't repealed. I think because on both sides of the aisle, it seemed so old fashioned, but like, there's not even a point in repealing it because it's so ridiculous. We would never enforce a, you know, a 19th century law that was that weird and draconian and backwards. Um, well, surprise. I mean, I, I did a, I did a control F in, um, judge Kaczmarek's the, the Texas judge from Amarillo who ruled that the, the FDA authorization of Mifepristone, that the abortion pill should be revoked or, or was never valid in the first place. If you control F that opinion, he uses the word Comstock 29 times. Um, so, and he cites it not as like, there's this weird old fashioned law. He cites it as like, this law has been on the books for 150 years. It's established precedent. Like this, you know, sending Mifepristone through the mail is clearly in violation of this law. And the thing is, he's not wrong. Like that law was never repealed. Um, But I mean, Democrats, I think it, had they repealed it, it would have felt like sort of almost like a weirdly symbolic thing. Like, like it wasn't even worth doing. And yet now we've found ourselves with judges who are citing it as as just sort of like unquestioned legal precedent. So in, in like a very literal sense, we have we have 
regressed, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean that stuff is bonkers to me. I mean, and and the the absolute just I mean laziness of Democrats is absolutely frustrates me to no yeah. end on a lot of things. It's this issue, it's <laughs> it's it's voting rights, it's the equal rights. It's I mean, it's just it's all of this stuff and it's just like you know, you you've had in the past 20 years 12 of those in power. And, you know, we're, we're 23 years, uh, 12 of those in power, um, you know, that's a, that's a good portion. You should be, you know, and, and, and yeah. granted, I mean, it was a different time in, in 09 and 10, but you know, a lot of things, but you know, you had a super majority. I mean, those things you could have just like, I mean, sail through, you know, no problem. And no one's going to really care, you know, because right. it is antiquated and whatever. But if just in case something happens down the road, You'd be like, oh, I'm sure glad we just, you know, got that through, you know, one one eleventh hour and a on a on a whole big roll of passage or whatever. It's just and the fact that we're we're doing that is 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 really frustrating. It's very, very frustrating. And you know, yeah, people people do it after the fact, but you know, it's publicly it doesn't feel great. And then, you know, politically, then these things, you know, become literally a mount uh, uh, a mountain out of a molehill. Now it's like a big thing, and then you know, you have uh, you know, Republicans on the other side, you know, just blasting all the time about all these things. And it's like, it didn't have to be any of that if, if all these things have been done, uh, previously, but I mean, it is one of those things where it's like, and it's not like it's the first time, right. We have, you know, we don't have a long history, but we have 250 years and there are periods where we've seen this happen and we just still keep making the same mistakes. I think, which is what makes it all the more frustrating is it's not like this is the first time. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I think agree. That's, that's what's really, I mean, most frustrating. So all of these issues in terms of, you know, contraception and abortion are going to be things we continue to, uh, discuss and talk about. And, and, you know, I think we're, again, like I said, trying to fix a crooked line in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, we'll see how that, how that goes. Um, so a little bit different. Um, so just as a reminder for listeners, you know, all of this is we're talking about, uh, <laughs> the choice or whatever or of women not having children. So this is one uh, uh, lane here. Um, but you talk, you give in the book a, a history of the nuclear family. Um, and I thought this was interesting and how this begins in the beginning of the 19th century and this concept of the nuclear family and how that, I mean, I'll say, I mean, you you tell me, but I mean, obviously that was pretty prevalent in the 50s and the 60s and even in the 80s and 90s and and still i guess it's the it's the quote-unquote standard model of family that we are given which is i'm not going to make necessarily a value value judgment i think it it, it was a model and i think there's pros and cons like any model of a family but it does seem that we are in a transition point or we're shifting to what that looks like and of course there have been other uh, if you will, alternative types of, of families at all those different times. But it seems now that it's, we're starting to say, okay, wait a minute, nuclear family, you know, uh, mom, dad, you know, uh, one or two kids, you know, live in a home, you know, whatever, maybe it's three or four, or it's just one, but, you know, kind of this, this, that's the, the template. That's the, the model, I guess, or that's what we're starting as baseline. Um, kind of give us, I guess, the history of that concept we're giving and the evolution of it and why we're having a kind of 
um, you know, questioning of, okay, wait, are we still, do we still want to do it this way? And this, it's not all great, but what, or do we want to find alternative ways? So, so just chat about that a bit. Yeah, sure. So the term nuclear family was was coined by an anthropologist named Bronislav Malinowski in in 1920 or 1921, um, and he he was thinking about the nucleus of a cell, right? That that like there's there's sort of this contained nucleus, and 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 so he by nuclear family he meant you know a biological mother and father and their offspring um, as as sort of a contained unit, like the nucleus of a cell. Um, this, as you said, seems super normal to us. Um, it, it seems like the the way families are. Um, but the, the the sociologist Patricia Hill Collins, I, I really liked the way she put it. In in um, she she has pointed out that that is not only the most unusual way of creating a family globally and historically speaking this is also the most stressful way of of parenting um that that it is sort of a biological mother and father who are solely responsible for their biological mm-hmm. offspring mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so and and i would add that it is also even in the united states and in western europe where sort of the nuclear family i think is is so normal we don't even see it it's like the water we we swim in um it's it's a relatively new thing. You really don't have to go that far back in in history, in American history, um, to find families that that were sort of constructed more broadly. The, the historian Helena Wall has made the observation that in colonial America, the family was thought of almost solely in the context of the community. So so the there is that like biological family unit. They lived in in houses that sort of housed biological family units, but she points out they never locked their doors. They were in and out of each other's houses. Um, women were raising kids together. They were disciplining each other's kids. They were feeding each other's kids. They were, you know, sending kids to go live with their sister or their neighbor, or um, because they had too many kids on their hands, and maybe that family's smaller or wealthier. Um, and and that this was just sort of that it was sort of a more flexible model of who could be counted as a member of the family. Um, so in, so I guess the, the question is like, like, how does this change occur? Um, so in the 1960s, this, this economist named John Hajnal um, is, is sitting around looking at um, birth and marriage records from uh 17th and 18th century Europe, like as one does. And um, and he starts to notice this, this strange pattern in Northwestern Europe over that period, like the late 17th century into the 18th century, hmm. where he sees that um, prior to that period, Northwest Europe looked a lot like other places in the world in the sense that when a couple got married, they tended to get married quite young. They would move and live with one of their families in sort of a multi-generational household or community. Um, They would have children quite young and they would participate economically in whatever the family was already doing. Mm -hmm. In Northwest Europe, um, in about the 18th century, he notices this starts to change, that that people um, get start to get married much later. They start to move away from their families of origin that it is not joined a multi-generational, multi-generational family unit, and that they have a lot fewer kids. And this makes a ton of sense, because if you have to sort of set up your own economically stable life, you're gonna, it, 
you probably can't do that at 18. So it's so the, the age at marriage starts to rise. Um, and it also means that you don't have grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and siblings to help you raise your kids. So you're going to probably have fewer kids. It sort of upends the math. This, this model, um, demographers have called it the European marriage pattern. This starts to show up in the late 18th century and the early 19th century in the United States. So that that sort of more family in the context of the community model that, that Helena Wall talked about in, in, the, in the colonial period starts to look a lot more like this um, European marriage pattern, or you could say the nuclear family, that, um, that people are sort of starting to, to live, to pull back, I guess, from their community. Um, by an by the 1840s, this has been not only it hasn't it not only become the ideal way of making a family, but rhetorically at least, it has become like the only way of of making a family. So the the president of Amherst College um, was a guy named Herman Humphrey. In 1840, he publishes a book where he talks about the the nuclear family. Though he doesn't he doesn't have that term yet, but but you know biological family unit is he says it's it's as inviolable inviolable as a law of nature that basically that is the only way that families have ever been created which is fascinating because if you go back like 60 70 years i mean you you that wasn't really the way people were conceiving of their families um so i think very quickly it becomes um, not only an ideal, but also like the only acceptable way of of, of having a family. Um, and I think, and, and then of course, you know, fast forwarding a century, like the the post war period only intensifies. Uh, sorry, post World War II period, the baby boom only intensifies this idea of the nuclear family as like a deeply American concept. It's it's sort of conceived of as something that makes. The, the United States and the American way of being in the world superior to, you know, to the Soviet or communist ways of being in the world that we have this nuclear family and that encapsulates all of our sort of morals and values. Um, and, and I think we find ourselves still stuck with this in some way because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the end result is that the nuclear family, if it is supposed to be a contained family unit that, that, sort of looks out for itself and doesn't seek support from outside. It means that you have only two people fully responsible for raising and, and as we discussed earlier, paying for the, the care of, of their children. Um, and, and this, so this, this means that, that sort of all of the community support that I talked about in American colonies or in a multi-generational family unit where it is more than two adults who are participating in raising the kids sort of goes away. Um, and, and that's where I think um, Colin's observation that it is also the most stressful way of parenting in the world comes in, um, that, that it is, it's, it's an incredible responsibility and a lot of pressure on on the parents in that family unit um, to to raise children with with effectively no help. Um, and to answer your question about why I think people are starting to rethink, we're I think that pressure has just gotten to a point where people are, mm -hmm. you know, parents are struggling. It is very difficult to parent in in American society today. And and so I think that is starting to make people think like, is there another way of doing this? Because this is this is unsustainable. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the thing that as you as I was listening to you explain all this, it, yeah. it sounds like this is a kind of social birth from the you know end or middle or end of the Enlightenment period, where there was this focus on reason, but this emphasis on individualism, which individualism is is fine. I mean, that's that's a that's a great thing in many ways, but you know, it's like any other you know concept or idea. Like they have, um, you know, extremes of that. And I think a, a type of bloated individualism um, is not always a good thing economically, familially, socially, et cetera. Yeah. And it seems, you know, look, I mean, to, to be charitable, I mean, maybe at the time that made sense, right? Maybe at the time, okay, you know, to try it that way or whatever. But I think that there's a... I definitely don't think it's, I mean, rooted in, you know, the, the biological way. Cause I mean, there's, it's a very kind of myopic, you know, point of view. Maybe there wasn't a, a global view. And again, I'm, and, and there are, listen, I mean, there are, there are many issues with, if you will, a kind of collective way of, of doing this as well. Sure. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, there's pros and cons, but I do think a kind of hyper individualism where there's a, only emphasis on the nuclear family and and not having other types of uh you know surrogate community or surrogate extended family or actual extended family and community um as i think i think you're right it's just it currently it's just reaching it's it's reaching a tipping point and i feel like the cynicism that happens with a lot of people uh i don't know if you see it this way but people start to say, well, we just don't really need any of that. And I don't think it's that we don't need it. I think for some people, they might not need it. That's fine. But I think it's, no, we just have to reform or, 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 or reimagine how we think about family or how we think about, you know, children or no children or, you know, in, in those types of ways. And I think that that's, again, people get, you know, connected to, you know, nostalgia or they get connected to their values or ideals and they you know as soon as you're you know again changing the you know or or infringing on the nuclear family it's like you know you're you're breaking the ninth commandment or something and it's like you know it's just this isn't tenable it's not ten it's not that, that you want to you know not have the nuclear family anymore um yeah and yeah we can look at collectivist societies and see that there's definitely spaces where or places where they're doing things very well. Um, and I mean, again, there's cons to that as well, just like anything else, but there's definitely some, some wonderful aspects of that. Uh, what do you, what do you think on this point? Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems like, um, in, I, I mentioned Humphrey, the, the, uh, president of Amherst college sort of articulating that the, the nuclear family is, is, a thing of nature that it is it is not just god it is nature that that has has sort of created this as the only way of having a family the danger of that i think is that it means that a family that needs outside support is doing something unnatural right. or they right. they are they are failing right. to to do this thing that is that is natural like i mean he even compares it to the laws of gravity so they're they are like violating the laws of gravity and and i think we see that I mean, I think we can see that even today, that parents who need additional support or families that need additional support, it's it's framed as them failing 
at sort of fulfilling this natural thing that you're supposed to be able to do naturally, which is Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. to alone care for your children. Mm -hmm. I think about um, last month in in North Dakota, the state legislature voted to um, not to sort of increase the the number of um, or not to increase the the free lunch program in, in schools. And you had state legislatures standing up and saying, you know, well, if parents are failing to feed their kids, I don't see how that's our problem. Um, and, and and so I think that is that is the danger that we run with conceiving of the nuclear family as as sort of this this natural thing that that should be able to care for itself because it allows us to say, you know, someone who or a family that is unable to fully care for itself in the absence of community support, like that's that's their failure. That's that's not my problem. Yeah. When when if you look, you know, even a little bit further back in history, um, families that needed support, there there were places to get support. Um, like I said, in the American colonies, it, it was very common for families that fell on the hard times. They would send their kids to go live with, you know, people who were wealthier, temporarily or permanently. And that wasn't, that was just sort of done. It wasn't, you know, the, the failure of the nuclear family unit. So, so I do think that there's, there's hangovers from, from the naturalization of the nuclear family. You know, I, I think that there are lots of ways to make a family. I wouldn't want to demonize any of them, but it's, the problem is not the existence of the nuclear family. It is the, the sort of expectation that every family should look that way and every family should be able to survive alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent agree with you. Let me let me let me take what you're saying, agree with you, and then make it you know a little bit more spicy. So, <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that absolutely drives me, you know, fucking bonkers uh, with Republicans and folks on the right is this almost you know <laughs> this pornography of the nuclear family as being this like esteemed value. That's fine. But when there, the the problem I have with with the with the right on this, and and uh, and definitely with libertarians, is, well, people need to be able to do it themselves and figure out how to do it themselves, and they're you know everyone has this kind of freedom and liberty and all this stuff, and that sounds great, but the point the problem is is that humans can want to do something but not able to, or they make mistakes. We all we all make mistakes. We all fail, or we're we. Yeah, I want to do that, but I don't have enough of the the willpower, the resources, and so it's one of those things where things break, things go wrong, and in a in reality, um, that's you have to have ways of trying to protect for that, or to because then it does become other people's problems. So the way this I think comes out is. You know, I, I remember hearing about the. I've said this before in other other conversations, but I mean, I was absolutely astounded at how much people during 2020 um, <clears throat> schools were closed, but there was people in full PPE gear giving lunch to kids that didn't. That's the only meal they had. That doesn't mean they have terrible parents. That just means that they're they're they might not have means, or they're working three jobs, or whatever. And that's that's a that's a harsh reality that should be corrected, and it's a shame. And I do think at the federal level and some state levels, what we've seen is we have to end childhood poverty, right? You saw you saw that with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, here in my state, in Maryland. You know, our governor was was is working aggressively to end child 
uh, uh, poverty and hunger and things like that. You know, that's just is not acceptable. I don't think the point is that we want government or all these other types of state or uh, or federal uh, p- programs to be feeding kids and giving them things or whatever. It's sometimes parents just suck. Sometimes they're shit parents. Sometimes they don't have the finances to do it. Sometimes there's all of these things and you need to have certain safety nets or certain things to help that. You can't just rely on like, well, if everyone does it right. So like you were mentioning in the, in the state of North yeah. Dakota, like that's a, that's a shame if, they're, if they're, you're going to vote against that because of something. But it's, I don't think something as basic as feeding your kids, I don't think that that's a problem with parents saying, I don't want to do it. I mean, of course, again, if there's obviously abuse or neglect cases, that obviously happens. But I think a lot of people have challenges. So I think if yeah. instead of trying to fit people into just this, everyone has to fit in this one box, it's, well, how do we have different ways of trying to enhance or uh, amend or adjust the nuclear family where everyone doesn't feel by themselves and they have to use all of these other programs where they have a community or they have extended family or things like that. And if that's not available or if that's not there and, you know, in, in their world, you can't get an abortion. So you have a kid, even if there's all these extreme cases, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's, there's like a million holes with all these things. And I can understand, you know, some of the, you know, the, the, the ideas behind it, but, you know, I think when you take the whole kind of like gestalt of it and you like wide lens it and you look at that, I mean, those are big, big, big issues. And I think that, you know, I'm not against, in theory, the nuclear family. I think it's preposterous to say that it's the natural way, I think. But I think that I definitely think it needs to modernize. It needs to at least reform. And this is kind of getting to the, I think, more of what the, what your what your book is saying is, and if people don't want to do that or they opt out of it, that's fine too. I just think we have enough ideas i mean isn't that true freedom and liberty for a lot of people so why are we trying to fit everyone in this kind of same bucket of sorts i don't understand that so i mean that's that's my spicier take but i don't know if you have any any thoughts on it but uh, but yeah that's that's where i land on it yeah yeah i mean absolutely i, I think they it, it also represents a really narrow way of thinking about you know my responsibility for the next generation like it, it it narrows it solely to like my responsibility is to the people i have biologically produced mm-hmm. rather than thinking mm-hmm. sort of more broadly about like you know in my community or in my society i have a responsibility to the next generation um and and i also think um one thing that my my book also talks about um is is sort of this this feeling i think in the present that's relatively widespread of of a divide between mothers and women without children that they're sort of like fundamentally different that their ways of being in the world are totally different mm-hmm. um and 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 i think it can feel you know i i mentioned that that the nuclear family can isolate parents and in particular mothers who who still tend to do more of the housework and the child raising yeah. it can be very isolating experience it can also be a very isolating experience to not have children and feel sort of completely oh, cut off certainly. from from any contact or any responsibility for the next generation. And I think if we, if we just thought beyond the nuclear family and sort of broadened our understanding mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. how we care for our communities, how we care for the next generation, you can, you can sort of, and 
you can mitigate both of those feelings of isolation at the same time mm-hmm. by supporting mm-hmm. parents and then also involving people who are not parents in sort of having a stake in, in what comes next. I mean, if we just, if we just thought sort of beyond this biological unit, I think we could really, like you were saying, reconceive of, of how we, we care for children more broadly or how we, you know, care for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. I want to come to that because that, that's, I think, uh, another big thing I've I've thought about, and I thought about a lot while reading your book. But I want to I want to get in here. It kind of goes to this extended family, and and we see this uh, this idea of the uh, grandmother hypothesis, which is super interesting. Uh, so I've talked about this twice on the podcast uh, at some length. So I, I have a, a friend of mine, uh, Nicola Rehani. She wrote this book, The Social. Um, God, I'm blanking on the name, social, social instinct. Uh, and it's all about her work on uh, cooperation. Uh, she's fantastic. She's great. And and she mentions it in that book. Um, and uh, we talk about it a little bit in, in that conversation. And then uh, I had a historian on the podcast, uh, Susan Mattern. Uh, she wrote the book, The Slow Moon Rises. Oh, I think I might have butchered that title too. Anyways. Uh, and that's a book on uh, the history of menopause, which was, I've read it three times, actually. It's a deep I would have to find that. I haven't read it. It's it a sounds fascinating. Wonderful book. It is a wonderful book. Um, it is, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I actually read it years ago when it came out, just kind of like a random, you know, bookstore uh, book that caught my eye. And, you know, I, that's, uh, <laughs> that is not going to be my experience. So I was curious about, yeah. well, I want something I'm never going to experience. What is that? I'm curious all about it. I want to know about it. And I thought it was a great book. It's divided into four parts. And uh, in the fourth part, it's interesting. She talks about how uh, menopause could be a Western uh, cultural syndrome, much as there are cultural syndromes in other parts of the world, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 really fascinating, and she gives a great history of it, and uh, history, and some some obviously some of the biology there. Great book, highly recommended. And she was very nice enough to come on, and we talked for about two hours. Uh, she doesn't do a lot of interviews, so I felt really honored. Uh, and um, she was very sweet and super brilliant, and we had a fantastic conversation. And um, we spent a good amount of time on the grandmother hypothesis. She talks about it in her book. There's a very long chapter in there on that. Uh, we we spent probably a good 30 or 45 minutes on it. And so you bring it up uh, in your book as well. So I'm curious about kind of from your perspective, and this is will dovetail into the bit you were just talking about on um, how people that are, so this is on the other side of things. So you could say ostensibly that, you know, obviously that people that are, uh, not childbearing age, I think is the right way to say it. People that are older and they're, and they're you know, past menopause and they're, you know, grandmother age or they're, they are grandmothers themselves, how they're still, um, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, Susan talks about this in her book um, and compares it with other primates, you know, humans still keep living, right? Even though they have no reproductive purpose, quote unquote, um, yeah. they still keep living. And the idea is, how they're contributing in um, uh, with with various pair bonds of of other 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 folks, uh, and helping raising children and being a part of you know the family you know extended and all that, 
So how do you kind of think about the, the grandmother hypothesis and this idea of, of, uh, of, of women that are not having children anymore, but how they're still super essential and necessary for, for folks that are or, or for families in, in general? Yeah, I mean, I I was really taken with the grandmother hypothesis, and and I mean, I think you you did a you did a great summary, but you know, very briefly, it's it's this idea that the very few mammals um, live for very long after menopause, and other primates, you know, they they die shortly after their last their last birth. It's like humans and then four species of whales that that live for a significant mm-hmm. amount yeah. of time after after menopause. And so maybe the question ele- is ele- why elephants also are yeah, they live they live right. pretty long as well somewhere in there yeah, yeah it's something like that but like primates they yeah. live to like forty and then they they don't live much longer after that right yeah they they have their last baby and then and then they they die and um and so the grandmother hypothesis is in part I mean it's like we are bipeds with large brain cases so mm-hmm. that means that creates a problem in birth um because we have to be born very small like our hips are small because we stand um. But our heads are very big, so we ha- we kind of get born half baked. Like we're we're not. We think about other mammals. Like a, a lamb is standing within twenty minutes of being born, and a puppy is like biting you and eating food at four weeks old. And and humans take years to be even moderately self sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so where the grandmothers come in that that basically the grandmother hypothesis is that you know a, a woman a, an older woman becomes more useful to the survival of her community or her species by helping care for the offspring of others than she would be by continuing to create more offspring um anthropologists have found that in um some indigenous societies that are that are sort of um you know hunter gatherer lifestyles um the children of a woman whose mother has died are much less likely to thrive. They're more likely to die because they don't have a grandmother sort of participating in their care. I, I took this, what I took from the grandmother hypothesis was, I mean, not solely limited to the utility of biological grandmother, but Mm -hmm. it's just sort of further evidence that, um, it takes more than the biological parents to help children thrive. That that in in humans, because of the the complexity of raising a human, because we are so helpless for so long. Um, and I think I would add, I mean, this isn't evolutionary, but but in the world we live in, where there are so many pressures on everyone, that it is just sort of it is necessary not only for the experience of the parent. Um, to have support, but that actually it helps the children thrive as well. That that you know having more adults involved in their care is is a good thing for for children as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's good for a lot of things, and I think also for cognitive development, for social development. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 tremendous with with same aged peers, but then also for um, interacting with with uh, folks that are older from another uh, you know generation. So I I, I, I totally agree. So I, I guess the 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 question I have here is what we were talking about before this is that I guess how for for people you know I have some friends that have said that you know uh, look I'm not going to have kids like it's just it's just for any of the reasons we listed earlier right um, and, and and I think some of them um, really have 
it's just a kind of volitional thing. I think they could probably do it financially. <laughs> they have, you know, good family, but it might that 5% or whatever it is. Um, I guess my question on that is the, the, the fundamental question that I have is how, how do we, trying to formulate it, how do we give, like, we don't see, let's say women, uh, or you can put men or just people that aren't having, aren't choosing not to have children as as like less adults <laughs> or they, they haven't they haven't grown up right or they because they don't have a they don't have kids um or like they, not that we make them second class citizens that's too strong but that they it's a little bit less than right and kind of connected with this this idea of well you know we, you're not a parent so you, you can't have an opinion on on children Right. And, and and to me, that I mean that drives me nuts, right? I tell this to um uh students when I teach. And you know, when when you're a student, you're learning to be a clinician, you know, a psychologist or therapist, what have you, you know, you have to, you know, usually somewhere in your twenties, usually and kind of traditionally, and and you know, a, a lot of folks that are in training, they don't have kids and and so they'll sometimes do couples work or they'll do family work. And, you know, at some point, whether it's in, you know, supervision or in didactics or something, they'll say like, you know, they'll bring this up, you know, the, the, the client is saying, you know, all these things about them as parents or in their, in their let's say, you know, in their marriage, but in, as parents or in the family. And I'm not even like, I mean, I'm not even dating anybody and I don't have kids. And like, I feel so like, you know, that imposter syndrome thing is just like, you know, going full force right now, you know, what do I say? You know, and usually it is something, you know, I discuss with, with students or supervisees and I say, well, you know, number one, I mean, it's not your personal opinions or things like that in that setting. But however, I think each perspective has value, tremendous value. And I do not think that people need to have, because the thing that's always going to happen is even if you have children, it's always going to be how you parent, but that's not how I do it, right? Or that's not how you do it. So it's, you know, you might get some, you know, pearls of wisdom, if you will. But at the end of the day, it's going to be, yeah, that doesn't work for me. Or you don't know my kid. Or that's not how I was raised. Or that's not how I parent. And so it really isn't like what advice are parents giving to each other? I mean, I guess nominally that's, you know, that happens. But, um, but I'm saying that because so many times people that don't have children or have no intention of having children, it's almost like they're invalidated from an opinion. And I don't think their opinion has more or less value than someone that does have children because each experience is different. Okay, that's fine. You know, I have that viewpoint. Okay. But I think as a society, implicitly or explicitly, that definitely happens. I've seen that happen. Right. And sometimes the person that doesn't have children will out themselves. You know, like, I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. So I don't really know. But here, and it's like, don't do that. You don't have to caveat it. Like, that's fine. Like, it's still going to be somebody's experience. So, anyways, how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we uh, uh, 
move uh, move our society in the 21st century where we're going to have it's okay to not have children that's fine that's not a taboo and that people that don't aren't invalidated from having an opinion about children what do you what do you think about this <laughs> um i mean i I end the book with sort of trying to think through how we as a society could could broaden the definition of family and sort of involve more people in our lives. Um, and I suggest that there's there's some piece of the work is on people without children like myself um, to sort of challenge us to show up for for the people in our lives who do have children and show up in like real consistent material time in tons of ways. I think there is a, a second piece of that, which is that it requires parents to let go of a little bit of control and be like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's not how I would hold my kid, but you also don't hold a kid all day, every day, and it is safe. So like carry on, you know, mm-hmm. that, there, that there has to be some sort of letting go of control and letting people in um, and, and, and recognizing, as you say, that just because a person doesn't have children of their own doesn't mean that they don't know how to interact with kids or might not be helpful in, you know, in, in material granular ways. Um, but that's a, we, we, it's hard. We don't have a framework because the nuclear family has been so sort of naturalized for us. We don't really have a framework for how people beyond maybe aunts and uncles are, are supposed to participate in the, the, daily lives of, of parents and people with kids. Um, the, the theorist Bell Hooks um, has a, she wrote an essay called Revolutionary Parenting, where she's sort of talking about this idea of how do we expand the, our ideas of the family. And she has a section in there, which she didn't have children. Um, she and her partner wanted to be involved in the lives of the children around them. And she talks about how they, they tried very hard to do this. They were like, tried to get their neighbors to let their kids come over and bake cookies with them. And she's like, people think it is so weird that you want to hang out with their kids. Like we don't have a framework for this. Um, And she said that eventually they stopped trying because they didn't want people to think they were super creepy or something. But, but I, I think this is all like, symptoms of of a world in which the only people who should be responsible for caring for children are the people who biologically created them and so it's going to require a lot of work and it's 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 showing up it's letting people in but it's also like this broader cultural thing to to reconceive of um other adults as potential caregivers and participants in your child's life in a way that we don't really have, we don't really have a framework for, we don't really have a word for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's yeah. hard. I mean, I guess it I don't hard. really have an answer. It is, yeah. it is hard. I mean, I, I, I have, you know, again, friends and family that they're, they're, I mean, they're just old enough now where they haven't had kids and they're just not going to at this point. But I, I really, I, I, I get really frustrated and again sad because I see other people, you know, just kind of, kind of, kind of look down at them because they don't have kids. And it, and it's, yeah. and I mean, again, I'm saying this as a parent. Like, I, I, th- I think it's, I think each experience is valuable, and I think each person can have an opinion on kids and parenting, even if you don't have that experience. I don't need to. Again, people are gonna, you know, beat me up for this, but. I don't need to shoot heroin in my arm to know what it what the experience is like, right? 
Again, I'm not making a comparison between drugs and parenting. I'm just saying that there's, there's you don't need to have every experience to know what it is like. And, and then the fact of this kind of hierarchy of placing more respect or, for people that are parents is like, well, they're still the way you parent. Again, that's not to invalidate other parents and the wisdom and the knowledge that they gain and things like that. But sometimes... Sometimes people will will ask me they'll 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 you know if they're becoming parents or whatever how, how did you do this or what did you do and I'll, look I I can tell you specifically what I did but that's not going to be very helpful for you because my kids different you know uh, what my wife and I did was different we are at a different time etc you know so I can tell you but you know you might say like oh I don't know if that will work for me but I do think what I tend to say is is what does your instinct say? What's your intuition say? And what are you worried about? And then kind of generally say, here's, it depends on what your framework or philosophy is of having with your kid or whatever. And, you know, I think, you know, that's a, I guess the best non-answer or something, but it's one of those things where it's like, you have to just kind of have a, a kind of framework of how you want to, to raise a, a person to be a functioning, healthy, contributing person in society. I mean, that's kind of your role physically, emotionally, mentally, physically, you know, all these, all the different components, you know? And so I think you can get that from anybody. You can certainly get that from people that don't have kids. Um, and I don't, again, think one is more valued than the other. I think so, but I, that is, I think I would assume is the kind of pervasive cause I've seen it very often kind of uh, heuristic is yeah i'm gonna go ask the person that has a kid because they know they remember diapers and bond i mean it's like yeah sure but like also kind of what you're saying and i don't have an answer either is we also box people out that don't have kids so it's like yeah, yeah no, don't it's just, it's very very possessive and i i just think all parents are narcissists and and not in the worst way but uh you know there's good and bad narcissism but i think it's just you know it's it's at the end of the day it's you in there so it's a part of you. So you have more like stake in it. You have more of like this like possessive kind of like that's going to, you know, there's a part of me or that's going to be an impact on me. And I think people just don't want to really mess that up, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, I think it's, I want a society, especially in a, you know, modernizing 21st century where we can give as just as much respect to people um, that do not have children as people that do have children. And that it's just another, yeah. another, uh, you know, type of way of, of, of doing things and that their opinions and their, and their ideas are still, you know, equally as valid, if you will. That for me is, is what is, I think really, really important. Um, and, you know, I think that's, again, I think that's sort of kind of at the heart of, of, uh, of what you're saying in your book. Um, so I guess the, the, the last question I have for you is, what is it that you know you you you've written a book that may you know ruffle some feathers or make some people upset and i think that's a good thing um but what is the thing that you want people to get the one or two things or if people read it and and you say yes that's exactly what i was trying to say you got exactly the message i was trying to say what what would those one or two things kind of be for you so for one thing, I 
was hoping to start a conversation, this is going back to the beginning of, of our conversation today, um, about the, the complexity of reproductive choices, um, trying to, to get people to think beyond, you know, you, you like children and you want them, so you have them, and you don't like children and you don't want them, so you don't have them. I wanted to start a conversation about, you know, the, the, how complicated it actually is to think about having a child and how complicated it has always been um, and the ways in which the world we live in has made it more complicated. Um, so, so I guess I wanted to, to start, get people thinking about the gray area um, and, and sort of, yeah, add nuance to, to conversations about, about having children. The other thing I, I wanted to do, um, and this wasn't a piece of the book that I was thinking about when I began it, um, but I was writing the book over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic and looking around me, um, the people I saw who, was str who were struggling the most were parents of young children and who were sort of cut off from the sort of meager support systems that they have in normal times mm -hmm. and that they were, they were really struggling. And it just sort of, something clicked in my brain when I realized that the reasons it is hard to be a parent are the same reasons that people give when they say they are not going to have children. Mm -hmm. And so we, that made it seem far less like a divide and actually like we're all in this messy situation together and we're just sort of, our outcomes are, are on either side of a coin. Um, but we are all sort of responding to the same factors. So it's not so much that we're fundamentally different. It's, it's, we're all experiencing the same things and, and making the best choices that we can. Um, and, and, and that piece links I think with with a lot of what we were talking about about um, the ways in the past that that parents would have been more connected to the community and they would have been sort of raising children <clears throat> in a community context that included people with children and without children. So I guess I guess one thing I wanted to say is like if we look to the past, parents didn't have to do it alone. People without children weren't quite as isolated. Mm -hmm. So the way we are today, where parents are carrying all the weight and people without children feel, you know, isolated from the product of raising the next generation, it doesn't have to be that way because we've lived in a different way mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's nicely put. It almost feels like a, a puzzle piece that fits. It's like, well, mm -hmm. you know, you don't these people won't feel as isolated and these people won't feel as overwhelmed. And if you have a good community, then you just help each other out. Like, I mean, it's, you know, um, you know, whether you want to have this kind of uh uh, uh, you know, kind of adoptive aunt kind of thing or whatever, or uncle or mm -hmm. things like that, where yes, you know, but they're really, really instrumental. No, I think that would produce, you know, dividends of sorts for, for, for the psychological growth of, 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 uh, children and adolescents. And, you know, I think there's a lot of positives. I mean, obviously there's some risks there, but like anything else, but I think there's a lot of positives. So, um, I, I fully, fully agree. Um, yeah, yeah. I was I was afraid that the end of the book could feel really Pollyannish, like like the conclusion is we just have to care about each other more. But I actually think that that's a really radical suggestion that, that we, no, it that is. we yeah, care yeah. about each other more. Um, yeah. That's that's yeah that that's not a fluffy thing like that. If if we're talking about care as like real material participation right, in each right. other's lives, like right. that is a radical concept. Yeah, because people have to expose themselves um, mm -hmm. to, to to allowing people in, you know, making themselves vulnerable. 
um, sacrificing <clears throat> things sacrificing that they have their, themselves, their right. time and their money to take care for someone else. Yeah. 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 And I think that is, that is tough. I think that is tough. I think that's, I think possible and I think it could be really good, but I think it's, you know, we just have to have to get there. Yeah. Well, the book is called Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother. Uh, this is through uh, SEAL, which is Division of uh, Basic and Hatchet Books. It's out everywhere. People can pick it up. Uh, where are the, the best places for people to uh, to find yourself, whether social media online or or, or through uh, your um, institution? Where, where's the best place? So um, you can find my website, which has links to, to everything, um, and my email if you want to reach out. It's um, poheffington.com, um, or you can find me on Instagram at Peggy O H Donnell. See what I did there? Um, Peggy O'Donnell with the, with the H um, on Instagram and Twitter. Um, so yeah, you can find me in all of those places, and I'd love to continue the conversation. Yeah, no, that's that's wonderful. I have to say, I was um, really looking forward to the the conversation. I loved your book. I uh, I, I really uh, enjoyed reading it, and uh, I was really excited to talk to you. And it was not a disappointment. I I really <laughs> felt uh, uh, kind of enriched by the conversation. You're very lovely to talk to, and uh, I really like your your thinking and all the hard you know work that you did on the book. And so I think it's uh, it's just been a really big joy. So I, I really really appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with me. I have enjoyed this so much. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and conversation. Yes, of course, of course.